0: Following is a production of Locked Up Sports. Everybody, this is Don LaGreca from The Michael K. Show. When it comes to talking sports, Bob Walters and Brett Grasso are the authority.
1: Can't wait. When it comes to talking sports, they're the authority. It's Bob Walters and Brett Grasso. It's Locked Up Sports, and it starts now. Bring them out, bring them out. Hey.
2: Here we go. Bob Walters from the Brian Gunsel Studios. This is Locked Up Sports. We got a big one for you here today. The Mets announced they're going to retire Darryl and Doc's numbers next season. Is public pressure putting Brian Cashman on the hot seat? We are joined by national baseball columnist and New York Times bestselling author Tim Brown to discuss his latest book, The Towel of the Backup Catcher. All that plus Frank Russo joins us to preview the U.S. Open. How you doing everybody? Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the show. I'm Bob Walters and we like I said we got a jam-packed show for you here today. Um we got a whole bunch going on. Uh, we want to start real quick with Brett. Uh Brett again is is taking care of his father as we said doing doing what he needs to do. Um if you look in the com- in the comments in the comments in the description of the video here, we have a GoFundMe. Now, we don't ask you guys for anything ever. We never ask for anything. We just ask that you watch the show and enjoy the show. Um, this time we're asking that you give us a couple bucks just to help Brett, just to help Brett's father. Um, anything, anything helps a dollar, $5, $10, $50, $500, whatever you want to give, you want to give 50 cents, whatever the lowest amount that GoFundMe will allow, check it out in the description and in the comments, the link to the GoFundMe will be there and listen, do the right thing. All right. Brett entertains us. He's a great guy. We love Brett. Do the right thing, throw him a couple bucks to help out his father in his recovery process so we can get him back on the field and back walking the streets of Sayville where he belongs. Um, so that's why Brett's not here today. As uh, you know, Like I said, no problem with that. We got a whole bunch going on today. We got um, Tim Brown, who uh, a great spot. He was a great guest. You're going to love the interview. Uh, we get into everything about his new book. He's a New York Times bestselling author. His new book is The Tao of the, pa- of the Backup Catcher. Playing for the love of the game. He wrote it with Eric Kratz, who was a prototypical lifetime backup catcher. You'll see it right there above my right shoulder, right above the Locked Up Sports uh, sign there in the background. But um, the Mets, the Mets making news. I said we wouldn't talk about the Mets, but we're going to talk a little bit about the Mets. Because um, they announced yesterday that they, next year, will be retiring number 16 and number 18. So you will have 16, 17, and 18 retired. From that 86 team. And then, as far as I'm concerned, as far as this guy's concerned, long overdue. Long overdue. Okay? They, they were they were the faces of the franchise in the mid-80s. Darryl is still the, the franchise home run leader. 252 home runs. Dox still had the greatest pitching year. One of the greatest pitching years ever. The best in Mets history. Some will say DeGrom. But Docs was better. Okay, Doc's was better in '85 and in '86. They were integral parts of the '86 team. I am glad that Steve Cohen is now doing this. And, you know, he's he put Hernandez in, he put the uh, Gary and and Keith in, and um, and now you know Doc and Darryl belong up there. They belong to have their number retired. Nobody can wear number 18 and 16 for the Mets. Okay, you can't do that because those are hollowed numbers. And I get it. Yankee fans are gonna make fun of us and. And say, well, you know, it, it cheapens it, and this and that. But listen, Doc and Darryl belong to, but uh, deserve to have their numbers retired, just as much as any any other Met. And I'm glad they're doing it. I'm glad Steve Cohen is finally honoring those years and that team. As Hernandez went in, got his number retired this year, and well, actually, it was last year. And then next year, it's going to be Doc, and it's going to be Daryl. Some people are also saying they're doing it for. To get butts in the seats because they're going to be bad next year. Listen, the Mets aren't going to be that bad next year. Okay, then they might—they might not be a World Series contending team. They might not make the playoffs, but they're not going to be terrible. They're not terrible this year either. You know, they're—they're they're bad teams. I know the Mets were, were bad this year, compa- especially compared to what we thought we were going to get with that team. But they're not—they're not, you know, a bottom five team. They're not a bottom feeder. They in this little run they went on here in the last you know, two weeks has really elevated them a little bit. So that's good news as far as the Mets go. Um, the Yankees, the Yankees continue to lose. Listen, the Yankees are, are circling the drain with this season. Okay, they're, they're 10 games, I believe, out of the wild card. They are, they've lost 10 of 11. The only win they have is against the Nationals. The night when Judge hit three home runs. Other than that, the Yankees have done nothing. Severino... Actually, believe it or not, Severino got the one win during this stretch, this 11-game stretch. And a lot of the talk and a lot of online and a lot of the chatter from Yankee fans are that they want Cashman out, okay? And my question is, is public pressure getting to how? Do they hear it? Are they going to act on it? Because it's really loud, and Yankee fans are really I've seen multiple polls where it's 75, 80%, 68%. You know, upward 60s to 85% in these polls want Cashman gone. Now, there's nothing official about the polls. But you got to think, does Hal maybe see this and say, maybe we just need to clean house? I think Boone is gone at the end of this year. I don't think Boone is going to come back. I'm not saying it's the right thing to do. I do think Cashman, I do think it's time for Cashman to go because... I mean, it's just been too long. It's 25 years. That, that, and I think that's part of it. I do think he's underappreciated, Brian Cashman, that is, for, by Yankee fans. He has been one of the top executives in the game the entire time he's been here. They did win a World Series. They've been in the playoffs every year. They are above five hundred for over 30 years. They just had the, this nine-game losing streak, which nine games, it's a long losing streak. But teams have nine-game losing streaks. The Yankees haven't had one in 41 years. So, I mean no one's feeling bad for the Yankees, but who are you going to get? Are you going to be uh, do you have someone in mind? You can't just fire them. You got to you got to look at the aftermath of it. Now, yeah, you could get rid of Cashman and it would be justified, and you could get rid of Boone and it would definitely be justified. Who are you going to bring in? Who's going to be what's the aftermath of that going to look like? Do you have anybody in mind? That's what you got to think of because yeah, it'll feel good for a couple days. Got Cashman out of here. He was terrible. You know, he, they, those weren't even his World Series. The the whole thing. You, you hear it all. But now who comes in? Because you got to realize that Cashman's a top five GM in the league. He's gonna have another job in a, in two weeks if you if you get rid of him. Boone will probably still get another managing manager job because Boone's d- done a decent job here. So you, that's what you got to think of. And and I don't know. The, I know it leaked out a couple weeks ago that that Brian Cashman was going to come back and that it was undecided if Boone was going to come back. I think Boone is done. Cashman, I, I just feel like, you know, the, the public sentiment might be tipping the scales and maybe they just get rid of them both. And it'll be very interesting. I don't think the Yankees are going to be very good next year. They, they're stuck with this judge 10-year contract now. I don't think they're going to go after Otani, which we'll get to in a minute. Um. So, I mean... You got to think about what happens after you get rid of these guys. It'll feel good to get rid of them because, you you know, for some reason Yankee fans hate them because God forbid they have one bad year. That's how fickle the Yankee fans are. Um, As far as Otani, which I just mentioned, um, the Angels are coming to town this week. I'm actually going to the game Sunday. And of course, it's just another disappointment. Really the only thing the Mets fans had to look forward to at Citi Field these last, you know, six or eight weeks of the season was we had a nice series against a weekend series with the Angels, Trout, Otani coming in. Maybe Otani, you know, maybe we could you know cheer him into signing a contract with the Mets or whatever. Well, Otani is not going to pitch again the rest of the season. He tours. He has a tear in his UCL, his pitching arm. They they took him out of the game with uh, a fatigued arm. They did the MRI. It came up. He had a tear UC, uh, in his UCL. He's done pitching. It's questionable whether he's going to play the field and play every day. It, it, I mean, if I was him, I wouldn't. This is now already going to affect the amount of money he's going to get in this offseason. He was looking at $500 million. He maybe not not looking at that anymore. You got to think now in the future. Is he going to be a pitcher? How long is he going to be a pitcher and an everyday player? How long can he do that for? you is it going to be you know he's not going to be able to do that for the the entirety of this contract that he's going to get he's going to get a 10 12 year contract somebody out there is going to give it to him it might be the mets it might be you know it might be the dodgers and whoever gives it to him the last couple years of any long contract just is terrible you know everybody wants to give these long contracts and they don't care and they don't want to talk about the the back end of it and then they give it to him and then a Five years into the contract, if you haven't won a title, or and then he starts to decrease. Now they start pitching and moaning. They did it with A. Rod. They're doing it right now with Stanton. They're going to do it with Judge, and whoever gets Otani is going to do it. But the story this week is neither of them are playing because Trout came off the the IL for one day with the wrist injury. One day went right back on it, and it looks like both of them might be shut down for the season. As it, it's a monumental disaster for the for the Angels. The Angels made that call to go for it at the deadline. Rather than trade Otani and get back a bunch of pieces, they decided we're going to go for it. And within a week of that decision, their season was basically over. From the trade deadline, they lost seven straight. They had a week worth of losses, and it was over just like that. And the Angels are probably the most disappointing story it, it, over the last 10 years. I mean, they, they we speak about it in a minute with uh, with our guest. I speak about it with him and get his thoughts on it because he was a na- Tim Brown. He was a national baseball columnist for Yahoo Sports. So we speak about it with him, and they're just snake bitten. I mean, to to make that decision, that crucial decision for the future of your franchise to go for it this year, and then just within a week, you lose seven games and you're out of it just like that. That uh, you know, and they they they've gone through a ton of GMs and everything like that. Uh, Jets and Giants tomorrow. Uh, Rodgers is going to take some snaps. Like I said, don't expect much from Rodgers. Word is they're going to limit his throwing. He just wants to get out there. I think he just is sick and tired of training camp. He wants to get out there, take some snaps, throw a couple passes. You're not going to see him for long. Two two possessions, I would say, max. If they get a couple first downs and the, the first possession is extended, you might just see him for the one because the Jets uh, the, the Jets don't want to have this thing end in the, the third preseason game against the Giants. But then next week we get going for real and we're going to talk football. We will have football preview shows next week and everything going on. I'll talk about it with Mark Mancini on Tuesday. We, we'll do plenty of football, so don't worry about football. We also got the U.S. Open starting this week. I love the U.S. Open. I'm a big tennis fan. So we're going to preview that with Frank Russo. That's coming up a little bit later. Um, so... You know, a lot of lot, lot of little things going on. I want to get to the interviews, though, right now because, you know, they, that's the best part of the show here. So here is my interview with Tim Brown, national baseball columnist, New York Times bestselling author. Enjoy the interview. All right, now we'd like to welcome in our guest for today. He spent over a quarter century covering uh, Major League Baseball, 13 years as a national columnist at Yahoo Sports. He covered parts of two great sports dynasties, the Yankees of the late 90s and the Kobe and Shaq Lakers. He's a New York Times bestseller. He's got a new book out, The Dow of the Backup Catcher. His name is Tim Brown. Tim, how are you doing? Bob, I am so good, man. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. you got such a long list of accomplishments that the, the bestselling
0: <laughs> author comes at the end of it. You know, you know what that tells you is that I'm old.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Well, trust me. I know. I'm starting to feel it myself when I watch these Hall of Fame inductions in football and baseball, and I see these players that were born five years after me going into the <laughs> Hall of Fame. That, that that me starting to get old i start to feel it i really do and
0: you start um, to think to yourself what have i done yeah, yeah exactly yeah, I, know I know the
2: feeling you know i, I spent a lot of my time in jail because i'm a correctional officer <laughs> on rikers island so you know i'm doing You're my on the time outside right of the
0: bars anyway
2: i'm on the right side that's a good that's a good point that's a good point now i was just telling tim I, I i got sent the book by the by the publisher i read it in about a week or two this is maybe two months ago i liked it so much i went out i bought the hard copy so i have one in my uh, personal library in my New York apartment, but, uh, but in my, in my personal library, I got the hard copy, uh, the Dow, with the backup catcher. Where'd you, where'd you come up with the title?
0: Um, well, let me, let me, I'll tell you, I'll go back to when I started thinking about a book like this, which was 30 years ago when I was a young guy trying to find my way on a baseball beat for the first time. Um, looking for people to educate me about the big league game. I mean, I knew baseball, but I didn't know what made a big league team run or not run for that matter. And so in my sort of search for knowledge, uh, I I kept finding myself at the foot of these backup catcher guys. And they, they were smart and they were humble and they saw the world. A lot of them were a bit older. Um, And so as I worked my way through my career, uh, again and again, I'd wind up in the corner of these clubhouses talking to backup catchers. And, you know, I would often say stuff like, you know, what are you reading these days? And they were always, it was always like the alchemist or, you know, something that was out there. And so I'm sort of carrying this information along with me, and 2018 comes along, and here's Eric Kratz, this like lifer, backup catcher dude who'd never caught a break, and he's suddenly sort of the star of this really sort of sweet postseason run by the Brewers, a team that really. Very few people saw coming. They had some good players on that team. But suddenly walking into game seven of the NLCS against the Dodgers, and the guy that was sort of leading them was Eric Kratz. And I thought, gosh, here's another backup catcher. And I thought about his story, and it struck me that this is a guy who could carry a book about all of the backup catchers, about the culture of backup catchers, and so to get back to your question, to me it was it was not really about baseball. Uh, the the background was baseball, the the characters were baseball players, but the message of this book was life. It was about humility. It was about showing up for the guy next to you. It was about kindness. Uh, it was about, look, you know, Bob, we're, we're all, you, you're on your journey, I'm on my journey, everybody in the world is on their journey, and you don't always get to pick where that journey ends up, but you do get to choose who you are on that journey. And so for me, it, the, it, it's not about like how to be a backup catcher. It's about the way you conduct yourself. And so the way the towel, um, you know, I felt like it was sort of the spiritual process for me a little bit about sort of taking a look at my own life and and how I treat people myself and uh, how you raise your kids and how you do your job and how you be where your feet are every day and and so that's where that's a very long answer to a very <laughs> short question and a very short word, but that's how I got there on that. Yeah,
2: I mean, cat. He had a couple big hits in the in the series against the Rockies, if I remember correctly. He, I mean he, that was his shining moment, and you know he's your he's your prototypical backup catcher. He, Eric Kratz is. He played with a million teams. He hit just over the Mendoza line. He's got yo a know, hundred. He's a hundred RBI guy for his career, not a season <laughs> right. for his career, right. and he's just you. you Catchers are, are, a, are a different kind of animal. Even in like little league, the catcher kind of stands out. It's you—you you look at the team and you can pick out the catcher. I might not know who the first baseman is or who the third baseman is, but if you look at a, at a photo of a little league team, eight times out of ten, you can probably pick out the catcher. They kind of stand out. So it, it, now, why catchers are not, let's say, lefty specialists?
0: Um. Well, for one, you notice along the way. For example. 14 of the current 30 big league managers were either full-time or part-time backup catchers. There was something about this position that bred leaders, that, that bred the kind of guy who you sort of wanted to be like. Um, and, and I think part of it also is that um, all the failure, right? We, we talk about failure in baseball, it's a game of failure. Well, you look around and you know, Mike Trout hasn't had a lot of failure. Shohei he Otani hasn't played has in the
2: playoffs. See, he hasn't played in the playoffs either. Really? <laughs> well, at first he has to
0: get there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> That's there, a whole other story. They
2: got Babe Ruth successful. and Mickey Mantle, and they can't get to the playoffs.
0: Right. Uh, and so, I don't, all the work they did, you know, all the work that the the work they do in the twenty one hours around the game is is unique. Right. The, the the left-handed reliever shows up at four o'clock and shags a little bit and then goes and sits in the bullpen and waits. But the backup catcher is constantly working and it's, it's not just at the ballpark where he's catching uh, bullpen sessions and side sessions and r- riding on the bench and helping the starting pitcher or whoever's, you know, whoever's in the game talking through what he's done Post game, he's having a beer with a guy. He's being the father figure, the big brother, the therapist, the priest, all these things that that comes with being that guy, right? That veteran presence, typically, sometimes you see younger guys um, as backup catchers, but it's become this sort of sage, uh, uh, almost Yoda type character.
2: Yeah, I mean it and the catchers like if I'm play if I'm a, a starting second baseman or a starting right fielder or even a backup, you could kind of get away with being lazy. Just yeah. show up, get 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 through on your athletic ability. The catcher can't do that. He might have the athletic ability, but if he doesn't know the hitters what their what their weaknesses are, what their strengths are, the pitchers what their pitchers are, their, their strengths and their weaknesses are, he's gonna look foolish out there. you can't get away with just your, your athletic ability. You have to study.
0: Right. I would even argue that the backup catcher, given enough time on a roster, and that's that's a big given sometimes, knows the pitching staff better than the number one catcher does, because not only, uh, I mean, the number one catcher only catches these guys in a game. The backup catcher is the guy who on Wednesday afternoon at two o'clock is, uh, you know, it's 97 degrees out, and he's grinding through a bullpen session with a guy trying to find a slider. or trying to, trying to locate his change up better and talking through the mechanics of it, the thoughts of it, all these other things. He has the time to uh, commit himself uh, to that guy, especially, you know, uh, we talk a little bit in the book about personal catchers. It's the same sort of thing. Um, You know, the back, the personal catcher is as committed to that start as the pitcher is. And, And a number one catcher, can't he's he's got all these other guys he's also committed to so uh, yes to your point absolutely I, I think that there's something special about these guys
2: now um, speaking of personal catches there's a good story in the book as you can see I'm am a Mets fan so I'm you know, <laughs> you know you know it's a rough life it's yeah. a rough life all right you know and I know you grew up a Mets fan so so I you did, know I part did, of it in White Plains <laughs> okay but now there's a story involving uh, R A Dickey and was it was it Josh Toley? Josh Tolly, yeah. I actually have right, right up here I have Josh Tolly's nameplate from his locker. So um, tell tell the story about Dickie and Tolly, and and it's interesting. It may it, it kind of made me feel bad, like not like Dickie as much, but it, yeah, it's a good know, story.
0: It's yeah, uh, and and I'll I'll preface this by saying that the reason I told this story in the book was not to make R A Dickie look bad, but to make Josh Tolly look good, um, because at the end of it. Josh Tolley was no less committed to making R.A. Dickey a great pitcher. Um, So uh, Josh, of course, uh, tended to R.A. Dickey for a huge portion of his career and because he was one of the few guys who could catch R.A.'s knuckleball, which R.A. threw a little harder than most guys, moved a little more than most guys. It was a a brutal assignment, and yet Josh Tolley became very good at it or as good as you could possibly be, be at it. And there were other parts of it as well, right? Uh, you know, RA was, was a bit of an eccentric character and, and Josh led him along through that. There was a book written uh, and Josh spent a lot of time with the author of the book uh, giving his insights. There was a documentary done called Knuckleball and Josh showed up uh, two or three times to uh, allow these documentarians to get video and 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 all and so josh was like super locked into ra's career slash brand and josh had an aunt and uh she had a son and her son tragically was killed in a motorcycle accident well she had asked josh in in Uh, as sort of time went on. Look, I'm a huge Met fan, I'm a huge R.A. Dickey fan. I was just wondering if maybe R.A., I love the book, uh, if R.A. would sign a book for me. And um, Josh said, yes, of course I can handle that for you. And you know, he thought it would make her feel better and all. So he approaches (laughs) R.A. in the clubhouse and says, and gives him the story, my aunt. I had a cousin die in a terrible motorcycle crash. And it would make her feel great um, if i could get a book and have you sign it and according to the story (laughs) according to josh ra turns and says yeah you can go buy that at at barnes and noble (laughs) and josh was just crestfallen uh and uh you know it's funny because in the book i of course reached out to ra to say hey um know do you have any memory of this and he said no i never would have done that so there is some whatever but uh i love the story because it it just spoke to the fact that you know that afternoon josh would have caught ra and and he would have continued on with his dedication to his craft and to ra season and I, i think it just spoke volumes uh of what a good backup catcher does you know you just no matter how much gets heaped on you, you just keep showing up.
2: Yeah, there'd be a couple uh, reached on swinging third strikes for me if I was the catcher <laughs> that day, or yeah, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was it was interesting because I asked Josh. You know, I mean, I was I didn't cover Josh and RA on a daily basis, and and going into that conversation, I said, "So tell me about your relationship with RA." And Josh said, "Yeah, I didn't really have a relationship with him," and I was surprised at what you know i'd re- wow. all read something completely different along the way and and he said no he shooed me off the mound and stuff and embarrassed me at times and so I was like all right
2: well yeah, I, I mean it's just another thing with the mets like it, with everything <laughs> there's a we we get a no hitter there was a hit you know yeah, we, we sort of was we we get a cy young 20 game winner uh, he's a jerk you know like but, and like you said he did deny the story so let take it for what it is yep um now, a lot of people I've heard comparing, like when I've been reading about this book and stuff like that, uh, they compare the backup catcher to the, the backup quarterback. I don't really see that because the backup quarterback doesn't really play. Uh, me, it's more the backup goalie in hockey. It's somebody I mean, that he he's very popular. You know, he's the most popular guy because if the goalie's playing like crap, he does get to play every, you know, so-and-so games. I, I think it's more of a backup goalie than a backup quarterback.
0: Yep, totally agree. Uh, I've had – People say to me, oh, I like the backup quarterback. And I said, yeah, but the backup quarterback never plays. And if he does, it's a complete train wreck. Especially Um,
2: for the Jets this year.
0: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Any year. This year.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, It's going to happen.
0: So, uh, yeah, and I also sort of think about the backup catcher in real life, right? Um, All the people who view themselves as sort of living on the crumbs of the original dream. And, you know, uh, and and perhaps feeling like they're not treated as well as they should be or paid as well as they should be or honored as they should be. I, th- I think of teachers, you know, people like that who could also sort of grab on to, look, um, this is what the job is today. I'm going to do the it, it may not be the whole job that I want, uh, but I'm going to do the very best job today that I can do in it.
2: I think it spoke to me a little bit because correction officers are the uh, the backup catchers of law enforcement. We're 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 not cops. Um, we we nobody knows what we really do. They think we're walking a tear with a shotgun, you know, and, and stuff like that. So nobody really knows what our job entails, how much work we put in, how much overtime we put in. I think it kind of spoke to me like that because we are the correction officers are the backup catchers of law enforcement.
0: Right. And all you can do is take pride in the work you do today, right? And show yeah, up. Dude, dude. I think a big exactly. part of the book is showing up. It's just showing up every single day. And that doesn't mean walking through the door. It means being prepared to do the job, knowing that you're not going to have to do the job today. Right. And that's playing in the game. Yeah. Um, and yet, and, and I was always really interested. And I asked a bunch of guys this. I'm like, look, I get being prepared as if you're going to do the job. Today, tomorrow, for a week, for a month. How do you do it for twenty years? You know, and not cut a corner. But the best of them don't. The best of them show up and you know the the, the number one catcher is an earache, earache, doesn't matter. I'm in, I'm locked in. I know this guy. I've I've gone through the scouting reports. Let's go. So Well, you know, I, I,
2: I mean they're all you know, it is tough, you're right, but they're not working for a minimum wage either. No, made, I'm no. sure he made quite quite a good living.
0: He did OK. You know what? <laughs> uh, Eric played in what, 800? No. How many yeah, like, he, he had 800,
2: just under 900 at bats.
0: Right. Um, and so, you know, when he's in the minor leagues, he wasn't making big league money.
2: No. Yeah. Okay, fair point. Fair point. You're and, right.
0: Um, and it's probably and, the and first I think team it's a relative thing, right? You're sitting next to a guy making 14 million. Yeah. Yeah.
2: You're right. You're right. And you're,
0: right. And you're making the big league minimum. And you're all banged up and working as hard as you can just to survive it.
2: And for these backup catchers, this is the, this is definitely the first team they've ever been on with they're not the best player on the team.
0: I completely agree. And, you know, it's funny. This is a lesson I learned early in my career is that you have a tendency to look, let's just say, at the last guy on the roster and think, oh, that guy sucks. No. That guy probably no, no. has a street named after him in whatever town he was from. He's the best athlete to ever come out of that town, and he's a big leaguer. He made it to the big leagues, and sometimes that's the whole dream, right? I mean, sometimes guys, you know, not all of the backup catchers are failed number ones or sit there no. dissatisfied uh, with the way their career had come out. Some of them, you know, in double A somewhere thought, oh, if I just bust my butt and kill it and all that, maybe someday I can be a backup catcher. So to some, it's the whole dream.
2: Yeah, I remember my father told me one time, a, a guy he used to play ball with, you know, whatever, he he made it, he got drafted, went to the minor leagues. He said he was the, he used to, when he played with them, he used to hit it on the roof every time. He said, but then he gets a single A or rookie ball, double A, they all hit it on the roof.
0: <laughs> right. I loved, um, you, you know, I asked, this question a lot of guys is, you know, at some point, look, they're, they're drafted, they, at, to your point, they were great high school players. They might've been great college players if they went to college. Uh, everyone in their hometown is telling them they're the best thing they've ever seen. And one day you wake up in Binghamton or Asheville or Sacramento or something, and it strikes you, oh my gosh. I'm not gonna be the next Johnny bench. And so what do you do with that? You either commit to the the best you could do from here or you go home.
2: Yeah, hey listen, it, it's a great book. I get now listen you got you covered baseball long enough. I got a couple quick fire questions for you as far okay. as just baseball goes, stuff Maybe. like that. All right. um true or false. If, even if Buckner feels the ball cleanly, Mookie beats into the bag. False. 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 okay. The biggest home run ever hit by
0: a backup catcher was hit by Todd Pratt. Um, David Ross hit a big home run in a World Series for the Cubs against the Indians. Um, so I would put those two together.
2: Okay. Okay. Um, Shohei Otani is better than Babe Ruth.
0: Shohei Otani is the best baseball player in history.
2: You think he's better than Bonds? Is he Barry Bonds plus he's a a Cy Young pitcher? Uh
0: cuz Bonds was something. I don't, think, something he, I don't think he's quite the bat of Barry Bonds. But I think obviously when you throw in the pitching, he's the best player I've ever seen and I think he's the best player anyone's ever seen.
2: You think he stays with the Angels? No. No, no. No, I, I think they team, made a I huge
0: can't. I I felt like they made a mistake at the deadline. I think they made a mistake last winter. I think they made a mistake at the la- the deadline before that. Look, I get it. You don't want to be the guy to trade. That's exactly I'm saying. But unless Artie Moreno's got five or six hundred million dollars laying around um, and has an idea of how to build a team, now suddenly after fifteen years of not knowing, um, I think it was a big mistake. Yeah, but what else would you do to build a team? I mean, you got Trout, you got
2: Otani, you got some decent. You picked up pitchers. Like, what else yeah. could they do? It's it's like a snake bin.
0: Yeah, the Angels a long time ago had to pick a lane, right? I mean, they've had five or six general managers since uh, with Mike Trout. Yeah. Or just prior to Mike Trout, they've had a bunch of different managers, and they just can't seem to get it right because, you know, they're throwing darts at this thing, and they needed to pick a lane a long time ago and stick with it.
2: And it was so, it was almost funny. They, they they
0: keep Otani,
2: they decide to go for it, and they have a week worth of losses right, right, right yeah. into the past. It's amazing. Okay, so uh, if the Yankees don't fire Buck, and after ninety-five season, they still win four out of five.
0: Um, man, you know what? I covered those Tory teams. That's a great question. Um, you know, one of the books you threw up there, the Jim Abbott book. Buck yeah, yeah, Was his manager with the Yankees, and he loved Buck. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that. Uh, you know, as, as much as I respect Buck, I think Joe Torrey and those Yankee teams were the universe coming together. I, I think yeah. it just worked. Uh, Joe had this really incredible touch with the, those veteran teams, with those egos, and I've never seen anything quite like it. Uh, the, the way those teams came together and won baseball games was was unlike, uh, unlike anything I've seen.
2: Yeah. Torrey was kind of the perfect, perfect fit. Cause a, a bit, let's be a baseball manager is not as important as say an NFL coach or anything, but he's got to handle the clubhouse. He's got to handle the bullpen. He's got to, you know, and Torrey just seemed to be perfect for that because he wasn't very successful
0: prior to that yeah, as a manager. I, it, I think that the sort of an underrated skill for a baseball manager is getting nine guys on the field every night who want to win a baseball game. And just that not get my hits, uh, not pad my stats not anything like that just win a baseball game and i think i think joe did a really good job of that
2: i agree because i i could sit from my couch and tell you who should come in the game and who could pinch hit and, and probably write eight, eight out of ten times but that doesn't mean i'm going to be able to handle you know 25 guys like you said one of them making the league minimum the guy next to him making 20 million it's a, it's a tough task Yep. uh favorite ballpark uh,
0: i don't know if they're still call uh, is san francisco still at
2: uh, I think it might be <laughs> um, I love park, whatever, whatever they call
0: I love that ballpark I love the the little neighborhood it's in um I love the fact that there's a courtyard Marriott within walking distance um, <laughs> I love the fact that there's like on the walk back to the courtyard by Marriott there's a couple <laughs> bars that stay open a little later uh that was just the perfect scenario for me
2: and that they come from the, the one of the worst right candlestick was a nightmare
0: yeah horrible Horrible. But uh, yeah. And and even especially through those 10, 12, 14 seasons. Um, you know, the ballpark was just alive. It was fun. The teams were really interesting. Uh, you, you know, got the boats I, in I the water, they hit
2: them into the water. Yeah, it's yeah, great. It
0: was just it was just cool, man. It was just it's just sort of a really great vibe. Um you know what so, you know yeah, which one fun looks fun.
2: great to me is uh Pittsburgh with the bridge in the background. That looks like a beautiful ballpark.
0: I, I do like that ballpark a lot. One of the things, one of the reasons I liked at t is it was a terrific press box as well. And, you know, if you're asking my opinion, it's, it was <laughs> comfort and it was, you know, you could see the game. Pittsburgh's very different. It's sort of that blimp view and uh, it's a little tough up there, but that is a, a great ballpark and a cool neighborhood as well. Jordan or LeBron? Man, I got to go LeBron. I, I just think, I'm with you. The, the size, the strength, the all, I mean, Jordan was, I mean, I would put him one, two for sure. And and you could probably convince me Jordan won, LeBron two, but for, for my money, I I'd go LeBron first.
2: The worst part about that question and it, is usually when someone gives their answer, they think that like you say, LeBron, let's say I was a Jordan guy. I think you're telling me Jordan sucked, but just if you're <laughs> yeah. number two all time, I'm not trying to say which one sucked, which one was great. They're clearly both great.
0: Right, one it sounds one like eight. the Hall of Fame vote. You know, it's the Hall yeah. of Fame vote. You decide not to vote for a guy, and suddenly, you know, people are accusing yeah. you of suggesting that someone stunk. Like, no, no, I, I think he was great. I just don't, I, I don't think he was iconic. I don't think he was exactly. a Hall of Famer. That's exactly.
2: all. exactly. I'm a tough grader with the Hall of Famer. Like, I, I'm the same,
0: man. I'm yes.
2: And I think you could look at someone, and and you could look at someone. And you you could is he a Hall of Famer? If you have to really think about it, he's probably not a Hall of Famer.
0: I, I would agree with that. I've rarely voted for a guy who didn't get in, which I know is, sounds goofy, but I, I never filled my ballot with ten guys ever. I, it was usually three or four.
2: Yeah, and I like that the baseball—it's not because the NFL—they have the NFL game, the Hall of Fame game—they have to put someone in every year.
0: That might not be the case. The Baseball—if there's nobody you know good enough, don't put them in. I had no problem with the years that passed without anyone going in. I didn't think anyone deserved to go in.
2: Fair point, fair point. Now, uh, lastly, tell me something interesting about the Yankee dynasty you covered, the team you covered, and the Laker team you covered.
0: Um, There's something that we maybe we don't know. I can connect the two. Okay, so um, prior to covering the Yankees, I had covered the Angels, uh, the Reds in 97, and then those Yankee teams, uh, 98, 99. Uh, and so I went from covering a lot of, uh, and also the Dodgers were in there for a year as well, a Dodger team that uh, went in a uh, wild card '96. Okay. And so I had never covered a championship team before. Going to cover the Yankees, and suddenly there was this vibe. This you know you had a bunch of superstars uh, that uh, really came together. It, it was really sort of fascinating to watch and you got a sense of what brought a clubhouse together, what won baseball games, and not just, again, to go back to the thing we've talked about with the backup catcher, not just in the three hours of the game, but in the 21 hours around the game, and it all just, oh, I finally got it. I said, I, I understand why, like, you know, you can pepper a roster with guys like strawberry and rains and chili Davis um, and, and still, have one goal every night, and still just show up and win baseball games. And so, I I got that, and then I go to I go back to L.A. to be the national baseball writer. And after about nine months or so, the the Laker writer quit, and they asked me to cover the Lakers just for a couple of weeks to get them through. And I said, hey, I don't know a lot about the NBA, and they're like, ah, oh, you'll be fine. So I sort of parachute into this beat. Everybody hates each other. All of a sudden, (laughs) every every conversation was about my ball, my minutes, my team, my money. You know, everybody had guys around them who would shield them from other guys. And and I was like, oh, my God, this is never going to work. I just saw how championships were won. And this is not going to work. And they won three in a row. And so the lesson was that that baseball is not basketball, MLB is not the NBA, it just works different. You know, it's about superstars and you need those egos in the NBA. It has to be that way. So that, that was the major takeaway with those two beats for me is that um, it it doesn't have to be one way, but particularly if you change the sport, then it really doesn't have to be one way. Even playing the sport
2: it itself is, is different with baseball i i always remember in gym in gym class just as a small little example the best football players the running back the quarterback they get up there to swing a baseball bat and they look like a a, a three-year-old girl swinging the baseball bat they just it, it was just but the baseball players they could shoot hoops they could run and they could catch a catch an out pattern it's just a different sport baseball
0: yeah i will say i've, I've seen thousands of Ceremonial first pitches—some of the worst I've ever seen are NBA players. NBA players, yeah. boxers, <laughs> are just boxers. dreadful. You know, for whatever reason, they're just never someone never put a ball in their hand or whatever. They had no. this other skill, and they're really good at that. But yeah, I would I would agree with that. I, I think they that, look like yeah, you're throwing the with thing, your opposite hand. <laughs> yeah, the one thing you lose sight of in covering the NBA, where everyone is somewhere between six six and seven two. Is the the fluidity, of the um, the grace in which they run and do their skills right, the way they move on the floor? You just forget that they're six foot ten, that they're just monster human beings, because they're all doing it together at the and same. And they're all time. the same
2: size. They're all the same size, so right. they all so kind of look. They yeah, they don't look. Right, as you tall, don't think they, about huge. it until
0: after the game, and you're you know to ask a question, you have to look straight up. Uh, but because they're so graceful and elegant on a basketball court, you, you, you completely forget how big they are.
2: Does it bother you how much the industry, your industry, as far as a, a beat writer and a columnist is changing and how it, you're kind of becoming a dinosaur as a, you know,
0: well, you not you personally, but about, <laughs> yeah, well, no, you're talking to a guy who got laid off two and a half years ago. Um, so. Yeah. Yahoo
2: hasn't been the same. Yahoo went full, like, you know, they just pick up stories here and there that they don't cover baseball as much.
0: No. Um, So yeah, you know, it's funny because I I have young writers ask me all the time, how do I get started? And, and I don't really know anymore. I, I don't, you know, the path that I took, I'm not sure is really available anymore because there are fewer newspapers and the newspapers that do exist still don't have the money to, invest in someone you think might have a shot at this someday. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's a little confusing. I, I, I don't know where the next great sports writers are coming from. Uh, although I will say there's, there are plenty of good ones out there. So I, I guess they're, they're coming from somewhere just from somewhere, some other different angle that I haven't seen before.
2: So now, uh, with now, because I'm fascinated with both of the stories, the Rick Rick and which is a wild story, and the end of Jim Abbott. Which one should I read next?
0: Um, you know, it's interesting. So, <laughs> I just did an interview about the the Jim Abbott story, and it had been ten years since I wrote that book, and I went back and read parts of it, and I I got misty again. You know, I just thinking about him and his parents and his struggles. Uh, you know, he's such a quality human being. Remains so. We, we, uh, when I was still living in LA, we would get together and play golf. Still, and uh, it was just—he's uh, just such a good dude and such a great story. I, I think that you know, it's underappreciated what he was able to do. Yeah. I, it's really still sort of blows me away.
2: I was telling my wife about it yesterday. I was looking up stuff about it, and I got lost in a Jim Abbott kind of Google search. And I was showing my wife had never heard about him. And I was like, how could you? Not? I figured everybody heard of Jim Abbott. And right. then I got to the point, I was like, "This!" I, I completely forgot he got a he got a hit in an RBI, like a line yeah. drive opposite field in the left center field single. I, it was great. It's a great story. So, all right, so that's the one I'm going to read, the Jim Abbott well, story.
0: And and, you know, here's the thing. So recently uh, he had an opportunity to – do a documentary. And Jim is this very humble guy. And he called me and he said, what do you think? Should I do it? And I said, you don't, you don't want to do it? And he goes, I just feel like people are over me. You know, it's like, you know, there's a book out, there was another documentary. And I said, look, Jim, I said, you know, your story is so unique. Hundred years from now, they're still going to be playing baseball. And they're still going to be kids like you, like you were. And they're they're, going to want their their parents are going to be able to say to him, "Hey, there was this guy once. Let me show you this documentary, or let me show you this book, or whatever." And we sat down to write that book to talk to one kid. One kid. That's all we thought about was there's a kid out there who who needs to hear your story. So. Um, that's what I think about that stuff all the time is, and I still get emails and Jim gets emails from, from parents and from young men and women who find it to be an inspirational story still.
2: Well, the book is the Dow of the backup catcher. He wrote it with Eric Kratz. His name is Tim Brown, big time sports writer. Tim, thank you for giving us a couple minutes. I love the book.
0: Enjoyed it, Bob. Thank you for your interest. I appreciate it.
2: Absolutely. Thank you. How about that? How about that? Thank you to Tim Brown. Thank you, thank you, thank you for coming on. That was some good stuff. He's got, listen, it doesn't get much bigger than that. Ken Rosenthal said that is his favorite baseball writer. The only reason that you have, he's not a, as big a household name as the rest of us because he didn't go on ESPN. He didn't sell out and go to ESPN. But he is uh, as big a writer when it comes to baseball. He covered the Lakers. Listen, he's got great stories. He had great stories. And I love that rapid fire thing where he answered the questions. I still think Mookie would have beat him to the, ma- the, beat him to the bag. So we'll see about that. Um, so thank you to Tim Brown. Again, thank you for coming on and giving us a couple of minutes. Uh, check out the book. The book is excellent. It's a great book. There's other two books I'm reading, too. Uh, the, the Jim Abbott one is, is going to be my next one on the list. But The Tower of the Backup Catcher, it's a great book. You're going to enjoy it. you fly right through it. 200 some pages, you'll fly right through it. No problem. So now um, we want to welcome our second guest, uh Frank Russo, former St. John's tennis coach. We're going to talk about the US Open. US Open. Get out to the US Open people. It's going to cost you a couple of bucks, it's expensive, but get out there. It's a great experience. It will get you interested if you're not even if you're not a tennis fan, you'll love it. You know, you get the grounds pass, you get to see these world-class athletes up close, front row, second row in these small little arenas, you know, or you can go to primetime and see see the big names, the names you know, and that's just as good too but there's a there's an experience for everybody at the U.S. Open you could you know at all price ranges as well so now let's get to that let's get to the preview of the U.S. Open with Frank Russo enjoy the interview and right, now we'd like to welcome in our tennis guest as we're going to talk some U.S. Open with former St. John's tennis coach and a good buddy of mine from high school and from forever ago Frank Russo Miami Dolphins fan Frank what's up buddy
1: How's it going, Bob? 17 days before we kick off and, and take I it. I, I know.
2: I haven't watched a second, one play of preseason, have you? I hate it. I can't watch it.
1: Yeah, I have, I have just because I can't not watch football if it's on TV. I, I enjoy it that much, but... You know, you got guys for fighting for jobs or whatever it is, and uh, I'll turn it on for a half or a quarter.
2: Okay, okay, yeah, I've I haven't watched any of it. I might if I'm around, if it's on, check out a little bit of the uh, the Jets Giants to see what Rogers is doing. But I mean, I'm st- I'm lucky. I, I almost just called him Fav again. I call him Fav all the time. Yeah, yep. well, let's hope he doesn't play like he's a guy. Let's hope he's not stealing like yeah. Fav either. <laughs>
1: That's right.
2: <laughs> but anyway, right. we got you here to talk U.S. Open. Uh, the U.S. Open starts Monday. We, we told you last year when we had Frank on, it's great. Get out to the U.S. Open. It's great. Now, Alcaraz and Djokovic, they, they seem to be on a, on a collision course. You might as well skip the rest of the tournament. Um, it looked like a passing of the torch at Wimbledon when, when Djokovic got beat by Alcaraz. Then last week in Cincinnati, Djokovic in a, a three-set thriller. It was a great match, a great final in which the Cincinnati is a big tournament. Djokovic was able to beat him. What do you see going on there? Do you see them on a collision course, and do you think Djokovic can beat him, or has Alcaraz kind of surpassed him at this point?
1: Well, to, uh, you know, he wins the second and third, 7-6, and, and he wins the third in the tiebreaker mm-hmm. in Cincinnati um, in a very, very well-played match. Um, I, I don't, I'm not ready to, to pass the torch yet. Uh, people are just start, starting, I feel like, to come around to the fact that Djokovic is the best of all time. Um, and I think that goes w- without question now, uh, to say the joke, which is best of all time Alcaraz, uh, I mean, I think it's fair to say that it's down to the two of them. I think there's really only three or four other guys that, that, uh, that could beat them in the tournament guys that traditionally are uh play well on hard courts or play well at the open um guys with big serves and, and, and like the surface but um yeah it, that's a pretty safe assessment that the two of them could be on a collision course and, and let's hope so because it's great tv it's great tennis.
2: yeah the only the only problem is and i've said this every year and i'll continue to say until they change it the final will be played on on week one of the nfl sunday and nobody watches it
1: <laughs> yeah am uh, i wrong i mean am i wrong uh, no, I, I I think you have a point there, and I, but they stagger it because the women are on on Saturday and, and the men are on on Sunday. I, I guess my question to you would be, um, how do you propose the, the open would, would run it or, or start the damn the thing? Start it? start
2: it last week. Push everything back. This is right. the, this is America's major. So I mean, if you okay, if you have to push the Cincinnati, which I get it's a big tournament, and the other tournaments back a week. You got to do that. I mean, we all get wrapped up in this tournament. Everybody, I get wrapped up in it. People who don't watch tennis really on a regular get wrapped up in it. They'll watch the primetime matches. And then all of a sudden you get to the final and you get like Federer, Djokovic back in the day or, or, you know, a great match. And it's at four o'clock on Sunday, week one of the NFL playoffs. What the hell are you doing?
1: Yeah, I I, I agree with you. And and I'll tell you something else. I I mean, uh, for a layman or someone who doesn't go to... To, or hasn't been to the Open, and I, I think I mentioned this last year to you, I suggest anyone that, that wants to go, go to one of the first four days. Um, get a day pass. Get yourself a day pass. You can't go into Ash, but no big deal. Um, you sit front row, and you can watch two two guys or two gals, or, you know, whoever you want to watch. You could sit front row. It's first come, first serve.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you could watch two players, top 30, top 40 in the world, and, and sit – and one of the front rows. If you get a day pass, if you're the first person on the court. So, um, but I agree with you. The scheduling is is brutal. The fact that they have the men's final um, the the day of the, the start of the NFL season, and and quite frankly, you know, the, the weekend before is the start of uh, is the start of college football. So yeah, yeah, I, the whole thing. The women's like
2: CBS. What yeah. are you doing?
1: Yeah, I agree with you, Bob.
2: And how has nobody said anything? It, I mean, it had to be—it has to be brought up every year. Someone's got to be like, "Hey, listen, the, the, these ratings tank at four o'clock on Sunday, of week one of the NFL. You don't stand a chance. You could play like
1: yeah, well, like yeah, like you said, they, they would either have to have to move it up or, or move it back, right? Um, probably moving the schedule up somehow. Uh, now, I don't know if that means looking to, to get rid of a tournament i mean they're not going to get rid of cincinnati or, or anything like that but um nixing a tournament or or starting it earlier there's got to be uh some sort of way around that uh to to sort of i mean there's no justifying really putting it on at four o'clock in the afternoon the first football or something. no yeah, like, what are, like what are
2: you doing like like who's watching right. that in, in half, the, right. half the time i forget it's on and i watched the entire tournament I'm wrapped up in this. I love it. I love the tennis. I watched the Cincinnati, le- you know, last week and everything. But anyway, so now as far as the American men go, well, who's to watch with the American men? Is it Tiafoe? Is it is it um, you know? Isner's retiring. We'll get to that in a minute. But who who's to watch with the American men? Who's going to disappoint us yeah, this year? I,
1: wow, <laughs> who hasn't disappointed us, right? <laughs> the Americans. I I mean, yeah, Tiafoe. Tiafoe T- T- is the guy. Uh, he's the guy. I mean. You could argue Taylor Fritz. Uh, Fritz was, Fritz got the highest top five in the world just recently. Uh, he hasn't been playing quite um, as well as he had been. But as far as Americans go, I think Fritz maybe slight advantage over TFO uh, in the odds maybe. Um, but it's uh, the two of them, and then uh, I would consider Tommy Paul as well. Okay. Um, who has been playing well? I, I think those three American men are, are probably due to uh, to do the to do the best in the tournament.
2: Now the last uh, American—it's twenty—is the twenty-year anniversary of Roddick, who's the last American man. It's just absurd that that we a sport that we've dominated long before, a long time, decades and decades we dominated. Now we've gone twenty years without a major champion. The last one to really have a solid chance and and be within you know. Fingertip distance of it was Isner at Wimbledon. He has announced that he's going to retire this year after the Open. Um, did Isner live up to his potential?
1: Oh, that's that's a good question. Uh, you know, look, I, I'm not I'm not looking to sit here and bash the American tennis players. Uh, Isner's a guy. He's he's always had a huge first serve, uh, huge serve, first, second serve, he could kick. He could kick it at one forty he can put it wherever he wants i i mean I don't know you know you, you could argue either way right you could argue that 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 he peaked and and he was consistently top twenty top twenty five in the world for the majority of his career mm-hmm. because his serve was such a weapon uh, on the flip side you could you could argue well he didn't really any weapons other than the serve and he wasn't able to develop you know huge ground strokes or beat guys off the ground that way or or win matches on clay where you might have to sit and rally for 20 30 40 balls at a time um is there's always been a a grass and hard court guy because of the serve so i guess you could take either stance on it me personally Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe a little disappointed in, in, in Isner's his career as a whole, um, but he has been probably the most consistent male that we've had on the tour in the last ten years.
2: Yeah, and and he, I mean, his is his legacy going to be the, a fifth set tiebreaker at Wimbledon? Yes,
1: it I, is, right? I, I don't. Yeah, I think so.
2: Because he, I, think I mean, he was never he was never going to going to you know crack the top three when it was Wawrinka and it was it was um Federer and, and Nadal and all them he was never going to get in there and he had a shot he had a shot and he, and he played that brilliant fifth five set match that with there was what there was with against was it Federer did he play a five set final against Federer uh
1: i, I don't well am i thinking erotic i'm
2: thinking erotic that lost the five set federer right yes okay yeah. that's right that's right yeah. so okay so so is his like i said his legacy is going to be the fact that he played a, a, a a match that lasted two days at, at Wimbledon and it'll be the fifth set tie break that changed after a hundred years of nothing, no, nothing like that ever happening at Wimbledon.
1: I I, I would agree with that. Anytime that Isner's name comes up in the next 20 years, the the first thing they'll think about is, is that five set match. Yeah, it was crazy. It was
2: crazy. I remember that. Now, now you have helped in the last 20 years, you have helped bring some, some tennis players from college into the pros and whatnot. And, and we've won nothing what is the problem
1: with men's tennis
2: because the women are fine
1: well it's funny you mentioned you mentioned college because if you think about the top college schools across the country right traditionally in the last 10 years let's say again florida texas usc stanford um, georgia warm climate places where you can play tennis all year long i think the the number one biggest problem is is training and facilities and and um money really funding because at the end of the day if the kid is going to go down to florida and be homeschooled or train down at img or one of these academies down in florida the parents have to have money right or or they need to be getting money from somewhere and on the flip side there's only a handful of states right to where throughout the year, you could play 11, 12 months out of the year. Um, the kids up here in the Northeast, that's not the case, right? There's five months out of the year where you can't hit a tennis ball outside because it's too cold or the weather's no good. So I, I think part of it is is the, the climate, really. Um, and I think part of it is definitely funding. Tennis is... Gee golly, off the top of my head, maybe the sixth, seventh most popular sport in 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 the in the states. I don't know. Um, so whereas these other countries, they're they're throwing a lot of money at it. They're throwing a lot of training at it. But right? you look but at but you look the, at
2: Spain. Spain never had any kind of tennis, real tennis program. They had, and then right after, you know, right as the Roda kind of after he won his thing, Nadal burst onto the scene. And he started playing and then, you know, obviously he won a million majors and now you got Alcaraz and you got another and you got a couple Spaniards that that play tennis and it's not really, it wasn't, they didn't, they never had a tennis, real tennis powerhouse. And now they are.
1: Right. Well, well, right. And Nadal has, has his academy and, and Murtaglou has his academy um, out there and, and, and now they're cooking, right? And now they're cooking, but. But the thing is, is that they, they value their – well, first of all, this kid Alcaraz is all is, is, oh, worldly. I mean, you watch him play. He plays a physical, physical game. Uh, he, he's a – I hate to do this because it's a little early, but he's a right-handed Nadal. Yeah. Alcaraz is a right-handed Nadal.
2: Now I was at – oh, go, go ahead, go ahead, go
1: ahead, He, he, he plays that same style game you know back on the baseline grinding just grinding guys down um and and on the clay he's nails just like nadal uh because they grew up on it right so um i, I mean when's the last time an american won french jeez yeah,
2: you know it had to be even, agassi right it had to be Agi or or sampras
1: well sampras here's the yeah. thing sampras on wimbledon was nails right yeah yeah and at the open he was he was. A he won every year. Out. Yeah, he
2: was brilliant at the Open.
1: On the clay, he was. Jeez, uh, I mean, he was average. Yeah, but Agassi won a
2: couple. I guess he won a couple French, I believe. Right? He was good on the clay. Different,
1: different games, right? Different games. Mm. Pete had a big serve, and 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 Andre Andre's thing. Even though, I mean, obviously as a professional, it is what it is. But Andre, to, to me, he would have rather taken the ball served it underhand and said, Hey, let's go. Let's grind each other down to the ground. <laughs>
2: yeah. He had a, right? he was more and, like and Jimmy so, Connors.
1: Well, Alcarez Alcaraz plays like that. Nadal plays like that. Um, to, to a much lesser extent, the guy that's playing now, maybe, um, a guy like Diego Schwartzman. Okay. Um, you know, you're, you're not talking about guys that are six, five, six, 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 eight, like, isn't Isner. right? You're, you're talking about guys that are six foot and below, maybe even, um, so, or maybe Nadal dollar 6-1, I, I don't really know. But you're not talking about guys with 140-mile-an-hour serves where they're going to hit 25 aces in a match. They're going to have to grind and work and, and, and return well and, and, you know, play well off the ground. So I, I think, uh, I, I don't know, TFO and, and Fritza are really our guys right now. Yeah. But quite frankly, they're probably more closer to like. The tenth best players in the world versus top three.
2: Well, that's that was it. My question to you was, what's wrong with American tennis? Is the answer nothing? Because we have eight, we have more top fifty players than any other country. We have eight players in the top fifty, and maybe we just haven't come across that special, special talent that hasn't come across yet. Is that is maybe the answer? Nothing wrong with American tennis. We're doing we're doing fine. We got eight in the top ten, Whoa. top fifty.
1: <laughs> I I don't think there's another country in the world that... There's not. We have the most. We have the most in
2: the top 50. So, uh, you you can answer that. Nothing's wrong with American tennis. We just don't have the best in the world right now. The best player in the
1: world. Right. And your issue, and and if we're being honest, we really haven't had a guy that's been top five consistently since Sampras and Agassi. Really.
2: Yeah, because Roddick Um, dropped off.
1: Yeah. I mean, Roddick won the Open, and he was... But Roddick traditionally was like 10, 12, 15 in the world. He, he was never consistently top five in the world. He, and, and at the time, he was dealing with guys like um, Federer, Sampras, Nadal, even Andy Murray at the, when he was playing. So, you know, if you think about the, the top guys, you really can only name four or five guys who have been prevalent the last 10 years, right? Roger Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, yep. Nadal um you know, you could put can sort of- Curry,
2: you could put Stan in there, but,
1: but he was he was kind of a flash in the pan. Yeah, yeah and and Stan right, and now he's he's older obviously and, and um I mean I, I would put Andy Murray in there prior to him getting injured. Yeah,
2: but he was never he never beat those guys. He was there. Well he but he, yeah, yeah, I mean, he won, he won Wimbledon. the Wimbledon. He won, he won, the Wimbledon. You're right, but but still, Roddick won one. A guy like Roddick or Andy Murray is going to break usually break through one time, win their one major or two majors. But you got yeah, like majors are won by like three guys for like a decade. Is that's how it's been? That's just how the game is.
1: Agreed, agreed. And you know what, my 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 good friend, um, my good friend who's British, Greg, we he would he would love to get in on this. I'm sure, but. <laughs> I'll tell you right now, and I hate to say it, it pains me to say it. I would argue that Murray had a better career than Roddick.
2: I could see that he was there. He he he, he was relevant and top five for longer than Roddick was. Roddick won that one, uh, and then he kind of dropped. He correct. dropped off, and he was a different player. Roddick was a was like an Isner type. he you know, he wanted to serve you. We just wanted to hit it past you.
1: Correct, and, and if you go to the open, I mean, chances are that the the guy with the big service is, is going to win it. Um, so, so the guys right below Djokovic and Alcaraz that I believe will be there toward the end or, or have a shot to compete are Daniil Medvedev, who uh, on at the Open and on the hard stuff is is brutal with, with that with that frying pan with those frying grand, uh, pan ground strokes that he hits. Okay, he, he's a tough out. Yannick Sinner, the Italian kid, who I believe. He's in his early 20s, maybe 22, 23. I'm not positive how old Sinner is, but he's very good, very talented. Uh, I would be shocked not to see him in the quarters or the semis uh, at least. And then the other guy is Zverev. Zverev made, I believe, the semifinal and the final two years in a row in 20 and 21, maybe. Um, now, here's a guy who, between the years, sometimes you sort of question what's going on. Maybe sometimes when you, when you watch him play, but... He's got a big game, he likes the hard stuff and he seems to play well at the open. So those are really the only five guys that, that I could see, you know, because then you turn into guys like Sitzipas and, and Hogarun and, and Tommy Paul. Guys that are sort of like Djokovic and Okaraz, but like one point up. And yeah. I just I just don't think that they have the games that translate to, to winning a major. I believe it's a five-horse race, and in reality, we get lucky to to, to get um, one of those other three guys in it at the end. I believe, and I hope, and I think the majority of tennis fans hope that it will end up Alcarez and Djokovic. And I will tell you, that's a final I would watch instead of the NFL. Well, I was just gonna say I Sunday. can't I can't
2: wait to watch it scroll across the bottom of the screen of the four o'clock kickoff.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> right. um, so now yeah. real quick the women the women have been wide open since serena left let's be real you had that well who won the what was the girls they, She came out of nowhere to win wimbledon i mean uh, to win um you're, the australian right what was it wimbledon
1: you're, were you talking were you talking about Iga? Iga yeah yeah
2: yeah no 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 eager gets no who was the girl that won i think i guess it was wimbledon right she came out of nowhere swalletek didn't win wimbledon oh. Yeah, it was, yeah, she yeah. came out of nowhere. Um, she was like hundred and fifty to one. She came out of nowhere, won the won the whole thing. Now it's you got Coco Goff, who a lot of people think it, maybe it's her time. We all watched her a couple years ago at prime time. She had an upset. You know they made it to the second, second or third round. Now they think it's her time. She has been dominated by Swiatek, but she beat. But again, back to Cincinnati. She or oh, not Cincinnati? The, the tournament for the women right before Coco beat her. She correct. And now yeah, people are saying this might be Coco's ch- time to win.
1: Yeah, well, I don't know who's saying that, but I I'd like to meet them.
2: Really, you don't think uh, so? I've read a couple articles. Let's no. say that. You don't think nah. she could beat Swiatek?
1: No, I don't think she beat Sabalenka either. Okay. And uh, she's got a tough um, job because she's
2: going to meet Swiatek in the quarters.
1: Yeah. Good luck. I, she's all for the world. I, I I don't even know if she's she's taking a set off Swiatek in nine matches.
2: Well, she beat her last week. So.
1: Yeah. Uh, okay, fine. And she won the final, by the way. And she won the final at that that uh Southern and Western yeah, Open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. or something, right? Whoever it is. Right. She she won the final, um but I don't, I don't, I don't I don't see it. I don't not, not in the major. And and truth be told, golf has to get there. um So I I don't see it. I, you know what? It is. You're right. It's way more open now that that Serena has retired. But um, if we're being honest, if, if Ash Barty hadn't retired, um, I believe that Ash Barty could have had a similar career to Serena. I, I think she could have been that dominant. No, that, um, I mean that's
2: that's going way up. That's that's asking a lot, right there. You think she could have a similar similar career to Serena? Serena's one of the best athletes America has ever had in any sport.
1: Could. Yeah, correct. I, I'm talking about a, a run like Serena to where she was winning two, three majors a year. I believe Ash Barty could have been that that, that woman for the for the next 10 years. She, she retired at an early age. Yeah. I'm shocked she's still retired, to be honest. Yeah, I wouldn't I am be surprised so. if, if she ends up coming back. Um, but I, I believe she would have been a major problem on, on the women's side of every tournament um, that she entered. Svitek is, is a little bit less dominant because she doesn't have sort of the weapons um, that Serena had. Um, Barty, she, she won a lot of matches just grinding and getting a, a ton of balls back, but she was, she was nails, Ash Barty. Um, Serena just overpowered I, I still give you. The edge, correct. I still give the edge to Svitek. If, if, if I had to bet someone um, to win women's tournament, it would be her. Um, but I think names like Sabalenka, uh, Hey, what about Jessica Goula?
2: Okay. Okay. You think she um, can win?
1: Well, I mean, she's done very well at the open. She'll be home. She's from, uh, I believe Buffalo. Um, and she's been playing well. I, I wouldn't count her out. Ange Jabor is there and, uh, and Rybukin is there. Um, so I don't, uh, I think the men are a little more, a little more straightforward. Um, you know, Rybakina won. She won Wimbledon, I believe in 21 or 22. I believe it was 22. Um, those four or five that I named, and don't forget mm-hmm. Um Those four or five I, I named, I, I might give the edge to Goff. I would put Goff at like five or six on my list of, of women that, that can win it this year. Okay. so um, you- But I, I I would be surprised if she won
2: it. All right, so give me your two winners. Does Djokovic, and does Djokovic ever get to 25 if he if he doesn't win this? I mean, he's got to get to 24 first, but does he get to the, the, the most majors ever? Yes. Okay. You got yes, him winning this tournament? Yes. And who's your women's yes, winner? I do.
1: Uh, I'm going to go with Sabalenka. All right. A little bit um, of an upset. I'm going to go with Sabalenka on, on the women's side, and I'll, I'll give you two for all the degenerates that listen to your, <laughs> There's a to lot your of them. station. <laughs> I will give you two names, um, one on each side that are huge odds uh, that I think could make a run in the tournament. Um, Danielle Collins is 75 to 1 on the women's side. And the name on the men's side is um, Hubert Hercow. He, you can get it 80 to 1. So on a $100 bet, if he wins the whole show, you could win $8,000. Those are the two total long shots if you wanted to throw a ham sandwich on it to win a bunch of money and just sweat it. Um, those are the two names that I would
2: give you. Just bet responsibly because they, neither of those two are going to win it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, the, the hope is, is that they make the quarter of the semi and you can maneuver and hatch now, yeah, right?
2: yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. All yeah. right, his name is Frank yeah. Russo. Me and Frank are going to be out there one day this week. We haven't figured out when yet, but maybe we'll see you out there. Frank, thank you for coming on. You got it, Bob. Take it easy, guys. Thank you. How about that? So Frank Russo, he gave you some long shots. He gave you some some picks. Um, the Isner thing is interesting, you know, whether he lived up to his potential or not. I, I think it's a tough question, just like Frank had had trouble answering it because it is a tough question. And American tennis with the men, I I don't have an answer because we dominated the sport for so long through so many decades. And then it just fell off a cliff after Roddick left. And you can't even put Roddick up with the rest of them. Roddick is not Agassi and he's not Sampras and he's not Connors and he's not McEnroe. You know, he, he was kind of – he was a good player, a top-level player, but he wasn't the major winner and the great talent and the great champion that th- those other names were. So – but the women, the women are fine. I think Coco Goff has a better chance than Frank does. I He doesn't seem to think she has any chance. I think she does have a chance, and I think, you know, she's an American. A lot of times the Americans get, you know, they get – propelled in in this tournament and it is america's tournament and it's a great tournament and it's a great watch and if you're in the area you can get out there i suggest getting out there so uh just quick news and notes rangers signed alexi Lafreniere, two years four plus million i don't know what took so long for them to to, to get to this deal everybody knew that he was going to sign with the rangers there really wasn't much interest in him he's been disappointing He's definitely been for a number one overall pick, uh, and all the number one picks around him, Connor McDavid and players like that, have been better. Lafiniere has been a disappointment. So has Capocacco for this team. Lafiniere with 39 points last year. Now, this is going to be his make-or-break contract. These are This year and next year is going to be make-or-break for Lafiniere, so I hope that he can kind of get it, put it together, um, maybe pick up a little uh, speed, that seems to be his issue. I don't think he's fast enough to really use the talent that he has when he gets to the NHL level. Hopefully, he could pick it up. Maybe he gets, uh, you know, with the new coaching staff on there, he gets better opportunities. Maybe he gets more of a chance on a power play. But either way, it's good to see the Rangers have signed him. Like I said, I don't know what took so long. We're about a month away from that, that getting going. Rangers, Knicks, the whole thing going. So summer, the end of the summer is upon us with the U.S. Open, two weeks at the U.S. Open, right into the NFL. Of course, it ends. They play the men's final on on the first week of the NFL season, four o'clock, which did, I don't know how stupid you could be over there at CBS and now I guess at ESPN. But it, it's it's one of the all time worst programming decisions that I've that I've ever seen. So, again, just to recap today, we want to thank Tim Brown for coming on. That that was a great interview. It was a great spot. He did a great job. We want to thank Frank Russo for coming on, talking some tennis, U.S. Open. Um, make sure you check out in the description underneath here, underneath the video, the GoFundMe for Brett's father will be posted. Listen, just give what you can, right? You give 5 bucks, 10 bucks, whatever you can give. We'll take it. He needs our help. He's asking for our help. Let's help him out, all right? So do the right thing. Uh, I will be back on Tuesday. With Mark Mancini, we're going to do some NFL. Now we can start getting into the NFL. I I just can't I can't bring myself to watch these preseason games. I may or may not turn a couple seconds to try and watch Rodgers tomorrow night, but I, I just as likely I may not either. I think, uh, you know, but they get good ratings, these NFL preseason games. They're garbage, and they get good ratings. So that's going to do it for us here. Thank you for watching, everybody. Again, thank you to Tim Brown. Thank you to Frank Russo. Thank you to you for watching. Thank you to everybody who donates to the GoFundMe down there. Um, I'll talk to you Tuesday, everybody. Enjoy the games. Enjoy the Angels if you're going out there. You know, it sucks that you don't get Otani and Trout, but maybe you get a couple wins from the Mets. Um, That does it for me. We'll talk to you next week, everybody. I'm Bob Walters. Thanks for watching. See ya.